Amen. You can be seated. Come on, can you say thank you to the worship team? Always so good. The tech team that makes them sound even better. Come on. There you go. See? There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I don't know. I, sometimes I get distracted by the excellence of harmonies here. Is it just me, right? There's a couple, like Claire and I looked at each other at one point during the worship set, like, that sounds amazing. The harmony, uh, Carrie and Ace, who were part of the worship team tonight, those last two songs, those harmonies, come on. They were killing it. I reference that just to give them a shout out, too, for excellence, but I reference it also because the, the harmony that we heard just now, right? is a personification of the harmony that it should exist within every local church. We don't sound the same, but the way that we sound should blend together with the people that we're in community with, and it should create harmony and not conflict. There should be a harmony in our church, not born out of sameness, but born out of diversity that is unified together. And we got into that a little bit last week. We're going to get into it even more again this week in this series that we're in entitled Protagonists Anonymous. The title of this message is called The Corinthian Man. We're not given his name. Many of you are familiar with his story. You also know our commitment with not having child care because of the pandemic. We're committed to all of our messages being kid-friendly, so if you see me skip over certain words and verses I'm reading, it's not because I'm leaving it out uh, for your benefit, it's so that you don't have any surprise conversations with some of your young children on the way home. Come on. And all the parents said, there you go. Come on. You can read the story for yourself. I'll give you the t- If you're visiting too, we always put our notes online. You can just download those. It's a PDF through our website. Um, So I would encourage you to check those out for all those textual references. The question I'm opening with tonight is this. How is a church supposed to respond to someone who professes to be a Christian but is living blatantly and boastfully in opposition to biblical morality? Let me read that question again. How is a church supposed to respond to someone who professes to be a Christian but is living blatantly and boastfully? Those are two important criteria, as we will see played out in the text that we unpack tonight. Blatantly and boastfully in opposition to biblical morality. Blatant meaning that the life that they're choosing or the things that they're acting upon, the desires they're acting upon, or the practice of their life is, is, is in clear opposition to the Bible. There's, there's, there's not a doubt. The Bible is clear that something is wrong. Boastfully, listen to this, boastfully is when you begin to call something that the Bible says is wrong and you begin to call it right. You tracking with me? It's one thing to live blatantly in opposition. That was the, the story of my journey for many years. And for many of you, that was the story of your journey. The difference was that we knew that it was right. We were rebellious. We knew it was wrong, but we did it anyways. We weren't calling the wrongness of our lives right. Still sin, still ugly, still debauchery. But in this text, there's not just blatant living, there's boastful living. It's taking something that the Bible says is wrong, and then you begin to call it right. Protagonists, anonymous, the Corinthian man. Now you might say, Fred, I'm not sure why you would call the Corinthian man a protagonist. It seems that he's an antagonist, but 
we titled this sermon The Corinthian Man not because of how he started, but how he finished. Two thieves went with Jesus to the cross, but one of them, one of them, heard Jesus say, today you will be with me in paradise. The Bible tells us that they both started with mocking, but one of them, with that little bit of time that he had in Jesus' presence, it turned his heart. He began as an antagonist, but finished as a protagonist, and so it is true with the Corinthian man. If you've got your Bible, you can do to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. The clock that's on the back wall is broken, so that's your problem, not mine. I don't know. Every pastor's prayer is, Jesus, just break the clock, right? Break the clock. No, I have my phone up here, so we're, we're going we're gonna to do our best to stay on track, but we'll see. We'll see. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. I'm just going to read the first two verses here for the sake of time. Verses 1 and 2 says, I can hardly believe the report about what's going on in your church. Skip, right? I can hardly believe. Blatant. Something that even pagans don't do. Don't you love that? Paul's saying people that don't even profess faith in Christ would not do such a thing. Blatant. I am told that a man in your church is married to a stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Right? These are strong words from Paul. Strong words. What we find here, if we were to keep reading, that this is a story of egregious sin. Now this is an important phrase for us, egregious sin. Because we teach here, if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, we teach that any and every sin is significant enough to separate us from God. We understand that, right? That's orthodox Christianity, or if you spent any amount of time in the Baptist church, you know the Roman road. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come on. You know these verses. If someone claims to be a Baptist and don't know those verses, then you should doubt their profession of denomination. <laughs> But the Bible is also clear that even though the least of sin is able to separate you from God, not every sin is viewed the same by God and how it affects us individually and how it affects the world collectively. That's why in 1 John in 5, he talks about sins that lead to death and those that don't. It's why in the Pauline epistles we find he has a, an inclination, Paul lo- he's a list guy, he loves lists. And oftentimes he'll list certain sins. And at the end of that, he'll say that these, these, these sins, that if these characterize your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Paul's saying, hey, all sin is sin, right? Because he gave us Romans, right? He's the writer, but the Holy Spirit is the author. He, he, gives, he gives us that theology, but then he also says, hey, these sins over here, you just better be extra careful about them because they're a little bit more serious. This story is a story of egregious sin. It's a story of church discipline. In verse 6, Paul is clearly saying that if you do not deal with blatant and boastful sinfulness, that you will create a culture in your church of permissiveness. And the church is actually supposed to be the opposite of that. Church communities are supposed to be places that inspire people to purity and holiness. 
Churches are supposed to be environments that we come into and we experience the loving conviction of the Holy Spirit to be changed and transformed in the likeness of Christ and our lives to come into alignment with the wisdom of Scripture. Churches are supposed to be places that help people get there and not give people permission to stay where they are. And in verse 5, we see that it's a story about restored relationship. You see, once we cross into this world of blatant, boastful sinfulness, then there is a separation, not just in our relationship with God, are we beginning to feel distanced from Him, but also that there is a severing of a relationship with the body of Christ. And Paul says, help people come back into a place of restorative relationship with the Father and in community. Churches too often get all of this backwards. Let me share this thought with you. We shun the non-Christian because of their lifestyle and accommodate the immorality of others because they are Christians. Yeah. We shun the non-Christian because of their lifestyle and we accommodate the immorality of others because they are Christians. At some point, right, that just flip-flopped on itself. In the first century, we see the very opposite at play. This is part of this narrative in this story. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, and then we get to 2 Corinthians, if you were to read all of the story again, all the references are here. What you see Paul saying is, hey, have a grace for the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit doesn't even live in them, so don't be surprised that they don't experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit when it comes to wrong living. Why be surprised by that? But the person who professes to be a Christian who lives a blatant, boastful, sinful life, that's the person that should be challenged by the church. And at some point, the church has gotten us upside down. We don't want to be upside down here at City Life. How is a church supposed to respond to someone who professes to be a Christian but is living blatantly in opposition to biblical morality? This is where church discipline comes into play. Now, I get it. If you've been around church for any amount of time, like myself, if you're a little bit old and gray like me, then you've seen church discipline done poorly, you've seen it done wrongly, and maybe you've been a victim of it. But we can't let the mistakes of mean-spirited people and sometimes well-intended people cause us to set aside something that's necessary. We talk as a church how great it will be that when we're all in heaven, those who have made a vow of devotion to Christ and look around and someone sees us and says, I'm here because of you, right? That's going to be a powerful moment. But you know what we don't want? We don't want people that are in hell to be thinking to themselves, I'm here because of something and think of our name that you didn't do for me. It's sobering, isn't it? See, this story of church discipline that we see here, the Corinthian man, Paul rescues this man. Because he's courageous enough to do the hard things. I'm going to give you three things tonight that I believe must be present in order for a church to do church discipline in a healthy way. And I want to start with this. I'm calling it your final feeling. Your final feeling. I would say to you, until you get to your final feeling, you should not begin church discipline. 2 Corinthians 2.4 reads this way. Now, this is the follow-up to 1 Corinthians, right? I wrote that letter in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. 
I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. The final feeling that we should have before we engage in a church discipline process should be one of sorrow. When we see people living a, a, a blatant, boastful, sinful life, I, I can just speak for me, I don't start with sorrow. I start with being angry. I start with being disappointed. I start with, with, with being ashamed for that person. I, I, go, I work through all of these emotions. Sometimes it's even indifference. It's like you're just so frustrated you don't even want to have anything to do with them. we got to work through all that stuff and get to a place where Paul gets to where there's genuine sorrow in our heart because we love that person and we care for them. Until we get to and settle into a place of sorrow, we aren't ready to initiate church discipline. This is where most churches mess up. They begin to engage people in a church discipline process while they're angry and while they're upset, which is why it always goes awry. Your final feeling. Ephesians 4.30. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Speaking of those who have made a vow of devotion to Christ. This same word here, do not sorrow the Holy Spirit. This same word that in some of your Bibles is translated, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, is the same exact Greek word that Paul uses to describe his emotional state in dealing with the Corinthian man. How great is that? See, this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit and the sorrowfulness of the Holy Spirit, it's not, it's, right, the Holy Spirit himself is not enraged at you. His heart breaks for you. We can't be in step with the Holy Spirit until we are aligned with him. Let me say that again. We cannot be in step with the Holy Spirit until we are aligned with the Holy Spirit. You see, when we begin to experience sorrow and grief for this person who's living a, a, a blatant, boastful, sinful life, when, when our heart gets to that place of sorrow, the final feeling that we've got to get to, then all of a sudden our heart comes into alignment with the Holy Spirit's heart, and now we're ready to be his instrument in restoration. Exodus 32, 10 through 14. Again, I'm not going to read that for you, but it's in the notes. It's the, it's the incredible story where God says to Moses, get out of the way, I'm going to kill them all. Right? He's so angry at the Israelites. He says, I'm just, let, me just, let me take them all out, and I'll just create a new nation for you. Right? Now that story gives theologians a bit of a fit because it Seems as though, and it's often described this way, that God is acting more human than he is God. But I think that's because we're misunderstanding the nature of who God is. See, I don't think God is acting human. I, I think what God is saying to us, let me help you better understand Imago Dei. Let me help you better understand what you're going to experience because you have my image. You're going to see things in this life that make you angry. And you're going to let those emotions flow, and you're going to let them come, but you're not going to act on them. It's powerful, isn't it? As we begin to read through the Old Testament, and we see this, this, this righteous indignation that wells up in God's heart, but, but when we see him moving and acting, even when he's moving and acting out of judgment, it's out of his sorrow for love for his people. It's powerful, isn't it, that Moses comes in and advocates for the people. 
See, God's doing all of this to demonstrate something for us. He's trying to show us how we're supposed to deal with our emotions. Talk about them. Express them. Let them come out. Especially in an audience with people that you know and trust. But don't let those emotions be the initiator of action. You gotta wait till you get to your final feeling, which is one of sorrow and grief and a broken heart. Number two, your greatest goal. What should be your greatest goal? One of my favorite commentaries is the Expositor's Bible Commentary, and I came across these two words. It was retribution or remediation. I was like, oh, come on, that's good. Retribution or remediation. So you've got to ask yourself the question, if you're beginning a process of church discipline with someone, you've got to ask yourself this hard question. Is this about retribution or is it about remediation? See, because retribution is about punishment, And if you start church discipline before you get to your final feeling, then more than likely it's about retribution for you instead of remediation. But if you wait until you get to your final feeling where your heart's breaking for this person, your goal shifts. Your goal is for the restoration of that person, which is what remediation means, to be made whole. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Listen to what he says. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. The implication is that this man has repented of his sin, and he's recommitted himself to the authority of Scripture over his life. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. It's powerful. Paul's saying now that this man is living right, you've got to let him come back into the community of the church and in fellowship. Galatians 6, 1 through 5, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Again, Holy Spirit's the author, but Paul's the writer. Same person in 1 Corinthians, same person in Galatians. He says, be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Same Paul, same writer. See, we understand here that where Paul gets to with this fellowship is not where he starts, and we understand that's not where he started from all the other epistles that the Holy Spirit has him write. We understand the Bible in light of itself. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21 So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone and the new has come, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a verse that many of you have memorized yourselves. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him, right? The ministry of reconciliation. We love these verses. Reconciling the world to himself, 
no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. Again, another. These verses, the words in them, we celebrate them. That God is making an appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Ambassadors of Christ, the ministry of reconciliation, the idea of being a new creation in Christ. Many of these phrases are popularized in Christianity, and well, they should be. But what we forget is that all of these words and all of these these phrases and ideas and metaphors and analogies were given to us within the context of someone being disfellowshipped. We want the stuff that makes us feel good, but without the heavy lifting that requires tears. The best indication of your church discipline goal, listen to this, is your prayer about the person in question and the situation at hand. I was working on the sermon this week and the Holy Spirit just dropped that phrase in my heart. I was like, that's good. Right? The Holy Spirit articulates, doesn't he? In such a poignant way. The best indication of your church discipline goal is your prayer about the person in question and the situation at hand. How you're praying about them and how you're praying about the situation exposes the true motivation of our hearts. There's these great, you know, people that talk about, I just, I don't like to start a day without a psalm. I, I, I always, always like to ask them, do you, have you actually ever read the psalms? Because I don't know about you, but there's a lot of psalms. I do not want to start my day with them. Maybe some psalms, but if you read all the psalms, you, you, you might say, I, I try to be careful when I start my day with a psalm. Again, I'm not going to read all this because this is a kid-friendly service. But Psalm 109, 6 through 13, if you've ever prayed this prayer over someone, you're not ready to help someone get better. They're called prayers of imprecation. Prayers of imprecation. When your prayer is about the death, defilement, and judgment and destruction of that person, their family, everyone that they knows, and everyone that will come to them for generations to come, something inside of you should say, you know what, I'm, I'm probably not a good person to reach out to that person right now. But God gives us these prayers because he knows if we don't get that stuff out of our heart, then we will not make room for the sorrow that needs to come. If you stuff all of that stuff in, if you don't find a safe place with God and a safe place with other people that you can trust to just those cathartic moments that we need, then your soul is going to be filled up with all this bitterness and there's not going to be room for the, 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 the sorrow that the Holy Spirit wants you to discover so you can be aligned with him, so you can be in step with him and helping to restore someone who's broken. Your final feeling should be sorrow. Your greatest goal should be restoration or remediation. The third is this, your first step. What's your first step going to be? 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting at your church. 
I will be present with you in spirit, so will the power of the Lord Jesus, and you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. That sounds like most business meetings that you've ever attended, except here at the City Life Church. Come on, praise the Lord. Listen, so his sinful nature will be destroyed, and he himself will be saved on the day that the Lord returns. Right? Paul's revealing to us what his goal is. His goal is restoration. It's not retribution. But this was not Paul's first step. We have to remember that we're given the end of the story here, but Paul had an ongoing relationship with the church of Corinth. And we know this wasn't his first step because of the rest of what God gives us in Scripture. Let me share this thought with you. Any application of a verse that is in direct contradiction of another biblical text is never an application God intended. Any application of a verse that is in direct contradiction of another biblical text is never an application that God intended. We know this was not Paul's first step because we're given Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, where Jesus lays out for us clearly how we're supposed to take the first step in helping to rescue someone who's caught up in sin. Now, I'm not going to read again those verses. You can read them for yourself. But let me give you four, I'm just going to read them to you, four principles, I believe, that govern Matthew 18, not because we necessarily see all of them in Matthew 18, but we see them in the rest of Scripture. We understand the Bible in light of itself. Matthew 18 will never be restorative. It will never be effectual until you make a decision that you're not going to be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. You don't have to work through all the steps of Matthew 18 in 14 minutes and 22 seconds. You don't have to do it in a day. You don't have to do it in a week. Sometimes the complexity of the situation might take months. It could take a year. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, we have to slow down. If our goal is for the restoration of the person, don't be in a hurry. God wasn't in a hurry with you. Oh yeah, come on. Why are we going to be in a hurry with them? Don't be in a hurry. Win a friend, not an argument. Win a friend, not an argument. Enough said. That's great marriage advice too, just saying. Protect privacy. Christians are the worst gossipers in the world. Because we throw around all kinds of theological language to justify, I know I shouldn't have said anything, I just, I just wanted them to be able to pray specifically. Right? If somebody calls you and starts a conversation with that, you just hang up right away. Did you just hang up on me? Yes, I did, because Fred said I should. We have, to be, we have to protect the privacy of people. This is huge, and churches fail at this miserably. People lose their motivation to walk through restoration if they feel like their whole life is on display. It doesn't mean that you might not it doesn't mean that you never get to a place where their life might need to be on display, but that's, that's the final step. That's the final of Matthew 18, and that's where Paul ended up with the Corinthian man. Sometimes it's necessary for people to be exposed, because that's part of the John 3 principle of bringing light into the darkness. Sometimes you've got to turn the lumens up, I like to say here at City Life. But you can't start there. Number four, bad attitude undermines right standing. My bad attitude under, under, undermines 
my right standing. What does that mean? You've heard me say it before. People would rather be wrong than side with someone who's a jerk. Somebody just got elbowed. I felt it in the ribs. A bad attitude undermines right standing. Just because you're right is not permission for you to be a jerk in dealing with people. Don't do it. Don't be in a hurry. Win a friend, not an argument. Protect privacy. A bad attitude undermines right standing. Those are three, three, four great rules to follow. If you're entering into a Matthew 18 journey with someone, your final feeling, your greatest goal, your first step, you got to be committed to all of those things before church discipline even has a remote possibility of being effectual. And we see all of these things played out in the life of Paul and his teaching to all the churches to whom he wrote these incredible letters that are sacred scriptures now for us. Invite the keys to come back up. I want to just do a a brief follow-up. This is in some ways part two from last week. If you're visiting and you've been here for the last two weeks and you're thinking, dear God, what's the church struggling with? What I would say to you is we have a practice here. We preach on it before it becomes a problem so it doesn't have to be a problem. You tracking with me? you got to have an appetite for swimming around in the deep side of the pool here at City Life. And we like to go into the deep end over our head with these difficult texts. Because if you don't, the things that you should talk about so they never become a problem will eventually be your problem. And if you wait and talk about them once they are a problem, I would say to you it's too late. Is there an exception to Matthew 18? And I would say there is. There is. Titus 3.10 reads this way, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning and after that have nothing to do with them. Are you kidding me? Why why does the Holy Spirit and Paul set that one apart? I'll tell you why. Because in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, again, not going to read them for the sake of time, in the notes, you can download it, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. These are referred to as the seven deadly sins. They should not be referred to as the seven deadly sins because the implication here that nothing else is deadly. If you, if you want to title this, you should title it the one deadliest sin because that's what Proverbs 6 is about. We're given six that are horrific because it's a poetic technique to highlight and set apart the final one. And the final one, and when you read the first six, every time you read one, you're like, what could be worse than that? And then you read the next one, like, okay, that. And then you say it again, what could be worse than that? And you get to the next one, like, and then you get to the seventh one, because you're waiting, it's building, right? What could possibly, one one of them is hands that shed innocent blood. You're like, what, what gets worse than that? You know what God says is the worst of all to him? Is the one who sows discord amongst the brethren. The one who sows, are you kidding me? God is saying there's something about dissension that is evil. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it's what created the rift in heaven to begin with. It gave birth to all the evil that we are subject to because of the enemy or our soul, the devil himself. Everything about him and evil started with discord and dissension. You know when discord and dissension is in play, listen to me, because people begin to attack people instead of ideas. 
If you're attacking people instead of ideas, then you've got one foot into the arena of dissension. If you're holding relationships hostage, if you're saying to people, I can't be friends with you if you don't agree with me, attacking people, not just ideas, holding relationships hostage. Listen to this third one. If you begin to pull others away from their friendships into your camp, right? Those are all the things that are indications that dissension is at play. We talk about these things as a church because we believe that we have been given a mandate by God to be a place of diversity like most churches never strive to reach. And part of that, too, was also creating diversity, not just within our own congregation, but on this campus. This building was gifted us in May, and one of the reasons we believe that he gave us this building is because of our vision to be a shared church facility. We've been praying about who that final church is. There's four of us that are here. We we knew that there was going to be an opportunity for a fifth one, and we're having conversations right now with a Spanish-speaking congregation that's looking for a home to come in here on Sunday afternoons. How great is that? It's good. We don't all believe the same things. We don't worship the same way, but we believe enough to find common ground, to find common ground. We preach about these things because we are protecting a vision and a mission that we believe that God has given to this church. To build, Juice already gave it to us, to build the church, Jesus envisioned to love the world and God to save. Can I just tell you the church that Jesus envisioned is filled with a lot of people that aren't the same and are different from one another. And these principles that I've been preaching on for the last couple of weeks are foundational for us as a church because they help make city life a safe place for different-minded and different-thinking people to come together. And anyone who's trying to displace that is displacing a vision that God has himself. Father, I pray for everyone that's here tonight. I pray for all of our hearts and these hard words that Scripture challenges us with. We know that sometimes Scripture comforts, but we know that there are times when Scripture needs to convict, where it needs to cut away, where it needs to change. And for each one of us, including myself, going back to last week, if if we rather stand in conflict and and walk in disagreement, that convict our hearts. Give us an ear to hear a warning from a trusted brother or sister. If there's any part of us that's inclined to dissension, if there's any part of us that's inclined to, 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 to blatant, boastful sinfulness, convict our hearts, Holy Spirit. And give us an ear to hear a word of rebuke from a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Jesus, we want to build your church here, not our church. Your ch- the church you envision, because we want to love the world that you died to save. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said, I'm going to invite you to stand, but don't go. We're going to close our service this way. April Hauser is going to come forward. She's having major surgery this week, and so we believe in the power of prayer. 
we believe in the importance of prayer. And so we're, we're as a church, we're navigating this whole journey of how do we pray and minister to people as elders. So we said, we're just, we're going to do it. So she's going to come and stand right here in the front in the middle and some elders are going to come and just social distance around her. We know that even if we can't be in proximity close enough to touch that the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is not distance from our distance. So we're going to come and surround there and just pray over her as we leave. Vanessa's going to anoint her with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Everybody's just going to step away. And Father, we just you can just extend your hand. Father, we lift up April to you. We love her. We celebrate. We thank you for the gift that she is to her family, to this church, to this community. And we know this, this ongoing journey with pain that she struggled with, God. We know that this is not your will for her life. So we just say in Jesus' name, we declare over her body that her body is going to come into alignment with your perfect will, that healing is going to come, that there's going to be a restoration. God, we pray for a result of this surgery that is Ephesians 3.20, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or imagine. Father, we pray that you would give her a body that would serve her with the same passion and vitality that she serves you. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.